And welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is episode number 151, recorded on January 10th, 2020. Today we are going to talk about a lot of things. Uh, the mega round for Cree, Brexit and R&D funding in the EU, the friend of a friend standard, cold emailing and much more. We have also got two interviews today. One is with uh, Sabrina Visander of Cree and the other is with uh, Andrew Flory of Luna and Peter Maganan Gomez of Blue Duck scooters. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's it going? Hi, Andre. Good to see you. This year is going by so fast already. I can't believe we're already 10 days in. Yeah, it's been 10 days and there has uh, a lot of uh, things uh, happened uh, so far. Uh, by the way, I just, I totally forgot to talk uh, about it uh, to you before we started recording, but I just realized that I read uh, a news just before we started about uh, uh, justeatandtakeaway.com. So the merger has been approved and uh, we are going to see the creation of the new company called justeattakeaway.com. <laughs> wow. So the takeaway wars are definitely on and it's pretty exciting to be here in Edinburgh while that's going on because Deliveroo has just, is just opening a new development office here and they're going to be hiring over 60 different technical and engineering roles and also be shifting some of their operations um, up here from London. So I think this will be a really exciting battleground, you can say, um, in the takeaway wars. Does it actually create any sort of excitement uh, in the tech community in Edinburgh? What do you think? I think it is. You are seeing a lot of press on it. But I think more importantly, that the opening of more spaces for developers and engineers is only going to have a positive impact on the ecosystem. I think really developers and builders are at the heart of all startup communities and getting more of them up here would be awesome. Right, certainly. So this is just a news flash uh, for the beginning of the episode. And now we can move on to the stories that we have actually prepared uh, to talk to. And uh, the first one I wanted to talk about is uh, a story on a Swedish startup Cree, that's K-R-Y, which has landed 140 million euros in Series C funding, which brings the total amount raised by the company to about 219 million euros. And this is me coming back to a long-time tradition of this show and uh, talking about uh, some of the biggest uh, funding deals of the past week. So this round, the round in question, was led by the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan, which is the largest single single profession pension plan in Canada. The other participants in the round were existing investors, which are Index Ventures, Creandum and Axel. So if you live in the UK or France, uh, you probably know Cree under another name that is Livy, that's L-I-V-I, and this is the brand that the company uses on those markets. Uh, people in the UK may also be familiar with the investor, an Ontario teacher's pension plan. Among other things, uh, it owns Camelot Group, which is the operator of the National Lottery, and the nursery chain uh, Busy Bees. And what I think is important to mention here in discussing this deal is that it comes from this Canadian pension fund. 
And you might recall last spring, the launch of Omer's Ventures. And this was something we mentioned on podcast number 113. And Omer's is the 300 million euro VC arm of another Canadian pension fund. And they're based in London and they've announced they have six staff members. And from what we've seen, they've already made three investments since their launch in Berlin's WeFox, London's Corso, and the Stockholm-based First Vet. So I think it's really interesting that we're seeing these Canadian pension funds coming over to Europe and investing in companies here. It's a big critique of the ecosystem that we don't have enough European pension funds investing in startups. So maybe the Canadian funds are onto something. Yeah, exactly. I I would be very happy to see more European pension funds uh, follow uh, suit in this case. Anyway, let's go back to Cree now. As In case you missed it, the company was founded in 2015 in uh, Stockholm in Sweden, and currently it operates in its home market, uh, as well as Norway, uh, Germany, France, and the UK. It is essentially a telemedicine startup, which means that it allows patients to consult with their GP through a video call using a smartphone. Uh, Cree plans to use the money to expand across Europe, uh, though it's not uh, clear to me yet which market uh, it is going to enter next. I could totally use something like this in the Netherlands, I have to say, although... It's uh, my GP is not located too far away from the place I live. I would still rather use smartphone uh, to talk to them and not go and uh, wait in the line or everything. And Natalie, uh, have you ever actually used uh, uh, Cree or Levy or whatever other uh, apps in the UK for GP? No, I haven't. Um, but I know this is a really big business and something that we've talked about on the podcast previously when we were discussing Babylon Health. Um, and yeah, exactly. so it is something quite controversial in some in some regards, but also an area of a lot of investment and a lot of excitement in Europe. Yeah, it is. I mean, I do understand the controversy, but as a consumer, I definitely, I am definitely all for it. So now, instead of talking more about the deal, what I actually wanted to do is to run an interview with uh, Sabina Visander, uh, the chief commercial officer of Cree, which we recorded back in May uh, last year. So let's revisit this conversation together now, and we'll be back in a few minutes. For tech.eu. I'm here in Paris uh, where I'm going to join uh, the Viva Tech conference. Uh, I was lucky enough to jo- also join a Daphne event the day before where I uh, had the pleasure of uh, seeing Sabina on stage. Sabina is the CCO of a company called Cree, Swedish uh, telehealth company. And uh, I was really, really interested in the story that she was sharing on stage. And of course, I uh, took the opportunity to interview her for TechEU. Sabina, welcome. Uh, can you briefly explain uh, what you do and what uh, Cree does as a company? Yeah, so I'm the chief commercial officer and, and, and that mainly puts me in a position where I think about the European markets right now. So how we become a European company and not the Nordic company. And, and what we do is we try to digitalize primary healthcare. So we think that the way it's working today is part of the last century uh, or even worse. And it needs to sort of catch up in many ways. It's hard to disagree with that. Uh, we also make it sound uh, a lot easier than it actually is, especially in Europe, where you have different regulations, also like, different cultures, different you know types of uh, of healthcare and the way it's uh, structured. So, how does that um, feel as a company trying to conquer this European market and not just tackle one country at a time? So, what's the strategy? So, I mean, if it would be easy, everyone would do it, right? I mean, healthcare is 
is huge. It's one of the biggest industries in the world and there's so much inefficiency. So there's a lot of value to be captured. And the reason very few dare to tackle it, it's because it's a nightmare when it comes to regulation and policy and uh, uh, dealing with medical operations and dealing with uh, healthcare outcomes and making, I mean, it's our job to making sure that no one gets mistreated or or dies when they they see a service. I mean, not many other tech companies have these kind of complexities, but that's. I mean, we like that. We like hard challenges, and we think this job needs to be done. So we're kind of up for the challenge. Of course, there's a lot that could be done on the policy side to kind of ease this change from zero digital to to a digital healthcare system, right? Sure. And that's a great answer. I'm wondering the environment that you describe, has it already evolved and changed since the time the company was founded up until today? I mean, definitely. And I think different different markets are in different stages of realizing what needs to be done, right? When we started out in, in Sweden four or five years ago, everyone was saying, uh, this will never work. And then the conversation has switched to sort of, yes, it might work, but not in your way. And now the conversation is is rather... Uh, how can we make this fit into our old healthcare system and into our fiscal clinics? Or how do we put the two pieces together, fiscal and digital? And we see that the other markets are kind of following the same path, but of course, in a much faster trajectory. Now, when we sort of proven that it can be done and it has a very positive effect on, on the healthcare system, we see that um, even markets with very sort of conservative uh, doctor unions like Germany, even they are sort of jumping on the train saying, yes, this is something we should do, but we don't know really how yet, right? Is it also something that's um, mostly driven by the consumers because it's, you know, the younger generation being more, you know, adapt to using new technologies? Are they sort of driving this more than the actual healthcare industry? Definitely. I think the consumers are ready for this in all of Europe, right? And then there's the two other important stakeholder groups, which is the, the policymakers and the payers, which are normally the same in healthcare. And then we have the doctors, so the clinicians, the nurses, the, the psychologists, etc., that's providing the healthcare. And I, I mean, the consumers, we've proven that they, they love this. And we just need to make sure that we're building the product in the way that brings the the clinicians, the doctors and the payers on board with this journey. We can't sort of let them slow us down too much. They can't product develop for us, but we need to make sure that we're doing something they're comfortable with all the way because they need to be part of this sort of change. Fantastic. Um, you're a venture funded company. I think you've raised almost $100 million uh, since your founding. Uh, interestingly, if I understand correctly, you were on the investment side. You were with Creandum, one of the early stage investors in uh, Cree. So what made you switch uh, sides in a way? I mean, this is far too exciting journey to be sort of only on the coaching side, right? I want to be part of the, the teams, the place uh, in the field. So that's why I jumped chip. I mean, uh, we still have Creandum uh, as a very supporting part of the investor group. And, and I still have my old colleague on the board of directors. So I still have that sort of link. But I think um, I was seeing that this is a, a great team already sort of from 10 people. It was very, very strong team. It was very strong product market fit. And I just felt that this is sort of once in a lifetime chance of jumping on something that will change whole industry right great well i think that's a great story the capital that you've raised so far obviously has gone a lot to product development it's also gone to expanding into new markets uh ukraine and, and france where we are now what's the next uh, chapter for Cree? so as i said i think a lot of markets are opening up in europe a lot of, of uh, policymakers are acting faster than we 
could have expected. And I mean, we are on the barricades for this change. So that's, that's really amazing how fast they're, they're moving. We see that there are really interesting things happening in Germany and other parts of the Dach region. And, and uh, given sort of the size of, of those markets, I think that will definitely be the next horizon. But then you could also say that, I mean, we're on the track to, to take Europe and we think we'll do that fast, but we also have a lot of respect for kind of the heavy localization that's needed in each market. So I think we're also cautious to leave our, our newest market, UK and France, too, too fast. Great. Well, that's the geographical side of things. Uh, what about product development? Where do you see uh, the product evolving to? Or do you think you'll stick mostly to your core of uh, delivering the best telehealth service that you can possibly provide? So I think, I um, mean, um, video meetings with a doctor, that's just a very sort of first baby step towards digitalizing healthcare. And it's, it's worked really well for us because a very natural step. You feel like, oh, it's still talking to a real doctor. It still feels very human. It still feels very personalized. And the regulators are on board with saying, yes, this is quality healthcare. But I mean, the technology is already far ahead of that, right? There's a lot you can do without doctors. You could, it's a lot of diagnosis you can do only by sort of asking the patients the right questions in the right orders, for example. So I think our job is to figure out how to use this technology and make everyone comfortable along the way. But I think, I mean, we're moving very much from sort of this few use cases of, of seeing a doctor, seeing a psychologist, or seeing a clinician into much more being a go-to place for healthcare, right? So integrating with the biggest pharmacy change uh, in each country to make sure that whatever you get prescribed, we get delivered to your door and including sort of upstream from having your clinician meeting, for example, making sure that you know why you're sick and you know what kind of doctor you should see and you know how to navigate the healthcare system as a patient, right? Great. Um, what do you, what would you say is your biggest challenge as a company today? So I think um, there's a lot of heavy lifting in each market on the policy and regulator side. And again, that's because it's hard. Uh, and, and and that's that's our USP, right? We're really good at at navigating those kind of very complex healthcare systems. I'm sure it will continue to always be one of the big areas that we are pushing on, right? Great. Uh, final question, a bit broader. You've been involved in the Swedish startup ecosystem, both from the investment side and now the entrepreneur side. What's your opinion of it? How do you see it as an insider? Um, I mean, the, the Stockholm sort of tech system is getting a lot of credit from, from tech journalists and, and there are reasons for that, right? We're a one million people city and we're, of course, punching well above our weight when it comes to creating startups. I mean, as we've seen in many other kind of tech ecosystems, it's such a kind of slippery slope, a positive slippery slope. Once it becomes really cool to work in startups, that's where sort of the young talent go. They don't want to go to the investment banks. They don't want to go to IBM or McKinsey. They want to work at like a five person garage startup. So, I mean, uh, I'm expecting that to, to continue from Stockholm, but then I think um, everyone's wondering, will this kind of very, very positive market wins and everyone getting funding. Will that continue? Mm. Now I'm, I think I'm too far from the kind of the investment side to answer that question, right? But I think even if that kind of slows down a little bit, I think we've created a city with a lot of talent, a lot of people having kind of like five plus years of experience working in startups. And that will continue to sort of create good things, right? 
That's great. And we, of course, at TechEU will be watching as well. Uh, Sabina, thank you so much for your time and best of luck with Cree. Thank you. Welcome back to the podcast of TechEU, episode number 151. And uh, Natalie, it is uh, your turn to talk about the stories of the week that has passed. Yeah, so it, rather instead of really looking at the stories from the week that passed, I think in January, it's always a, an important time to really look somewhat into the future, and especially as we're at this beginning of a new decade. And something that's impossible to notice, it, one of the biggest impacts to European technology and innovation over the past few years has undi undeniably been Brexit. And it's not really something we've talked about too much on this program or on the site more generally, precisely because there's always this situation of uncertainty that until Brexit happens, despite we have assurances from both the EU and the UK that things will be fine, there's just many impacts that we won't be able to foresee until it happens. And I think there is a certain level of fatigue and in some cases denial from many different constituencies around Europe and the UK that things have just been so drawn out and that people are tired of hearing about it. So if you're one of those people, um, I'm sorry, you can skip over my segment, but I think it's important to talk a little bit about Brexit, especially in the wake of the UK election last month. It looks to be a certainty that Brexit is going to happen. So last week on January 9th, um, the Thursday from the time that this podcast is released, the Brexit bill passed the UK House of Commons, which means that the EU, with the EU's approval, the UK will officially be out of the EU on the last day of this month, so January 31st, 2020. This will then enter a transition period, which will go to the end of this year, which the EU and the UK will hammer out the further details of the exit agreement. So for those of us in the UK, we are in for a year, which will continue to be marked by Brexit negotiations. And when it comes to those negotiations, one of the things that will likely be off the table for the UK will be access to EU research and innovation funding. The UK has long been one of the key recipients of the EU's research and innovation um, stockpile, and it is the second largest recipient after Germany and receiving nearly a billion euros a year in grant funding. And it is this grant funding that fuels much of the country's university research programs and importantly, its spin-out companies. One of these programs is the European Innovation Council Accelerator, which I've spoken about on this program before, and it provides business innovation grants of up to 2.5 million euros and equity up to 15 million euros for selected projects. This year, we're expected to see a lot of startups benefiting from these programs, so do keep your eye out for them. We learned a little bit more about how things will shake out this week in a new interview done by Maria Gabriel, whom, Andre, I know you're not her biggest fan, but as the European Commissioner for Research, Innovation, Education, Culture, and Youth, she outlined that as the UK moves to third country status later this month, when it comes to negotiations for the future of Horizon Europe and all of that research and innovation funding, the UK will not have the chance to, quote, cherry pick when it comes to negotiations for the future of this investment program. Gabriel was very clear when outlining the EU's position in this space, as they are going to work towards creating what they call a, quote, real single market for research, education, and innovation within Europe, end quote. 
The UK government has said that they would guarantee all Horizon funding to selected UK companies and innovators after Brexit, but there still remains a bit of uncertainty when it comes to how this will be done. And it's likely a difficulty for many of those early stage startups who have already invested considerably in applying for these programs. You see this especially with the European Innovation Council Accelerator, of which the first grants are in the process of being announced shortly. It's likely to have an impact on companies like Alice, which is a UK-based decentralized impact funding and measurement platform that's based in London. The company was selected as one of the finalists of the EU's 5 million euro blockchains for social good grant. The finalists, was, which will be selected in late February after the formal Brexit day. Other UK companies up for this blockchain for social good grant include Provenance, which is a startup that works to increase transparency around a product supply chain. This company is getting a lot of really positive buzz, um, and it's really concerning what's going to happen if they're not able to access that funding. Other EIC prizes to be awarded this year include up to 99 million euros to be dispersed for mobility for growth. 90 million euros for next generation batteries, and 105 million euros for transport projects. These are all big grant programs that UK companies won't be able to participate in anymore. Part of the reason why I think I talk a lot comparatively about the Horizon 2020 plan and the, the subsequent plan, Horizon Europe, um, is because these programs offer a really valuable counterweight to private funding. Private funding, of course, at least in Europe, has not been very bullish or too risk adverse to take on, especially when it comes to deep tech and innovation driven enterprises. Especially in the mobility sector, this type of public funding is integral. So when you think about Brexit, don't forget about these companies like Alice and Provenance and the other small and medium enterprises that might be caught in the middle with no access to these types of funds. But it's not just funding and public money that matters here. So in her remarks, uh, Maria Gabriel indicated that with the new presidency going forward in the next five years, the EU will continue to work on building what they're calling a single market for research and innovation that is highlighted by an inclusive movement of research and researchers and innovators across the continent. Some critics saw that research and innovation, even after Brexit, would be a place that Europe and the UK would remain aligned. But this appears not to be the case as Brexit moves forward. Many senior research officials in the UK indicate that the continued involvement of the UK in the Horizon program looks less and less likely, especially considering that UK MPs voted against a clause that would have required the government to guarantee negotiations that would continue the country's involvement in the Erasmus Plus scheme. Even as Gabriel and others in the commission work to extend the Horizon program worldwide, I think the approach, especially in respect to the UK, is fair given the program's commitment to reciprocity and partners working together. So when it comes to research and innovation, the EU looks like Italy playing hardball and the UK cannot expect things to be going business as usual. Brexit and unfortunately its impact on UK innovation will be one of the biggest stories to follow going forward as we look into the future of 2020. Yeah, I'm sure of that. But unfortunately, I also think that uh, research funding is not going to be on the forefront of the problems that the UK government will be looking at uh, come uh, January 31st. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, it will be something that is sidelined, but it has such a big impact on these innovators and especially the spin-out companies that have really benefited to a great degree from this access to the Horizon funding. 
Yeah, this is uh, th- this is really a shame. I actually I didn't realize that uh, the EIC only gives the uh, grants to uh, companies coming from the EU members. I thought that uh, there is a wider uh, kind of uh, range of the countries that can participate. That's true. There is a wider range of, com- of countries that can participate, but the UK would have to negotiate its inclusion, um, right. which is not certain at this point. And this will only happen after the Brexit happens. Yes. Yeah, this doesn't doesn't sound great for the company. So I do hope that uh, they can still uh, survive and uh, cope with the lack of uh, funding and hopefully find other sources uh, of uh, money, at least for the time being. And moving forward uh, with the agenda of this episode, uh, we've got another interview for you. And this one, it's uh, a conversation with uh, two people, one of whom is Andrew Fleury, uh, the CEO and founder of Luna. And the other is Peter Magenan Gomez, uh, the VP of operations at Blue Duck Scooters. And uh, what uh, I talked uh, about to them is this new technology that uh, Luna came up with, uh, which is all about the new way of positioning e-scooters, which offers accuracy of uh, up to 5 to 10 centimeters, which is much better uh, than the current uh, uh, GPS positioning can offer. So check out this interview uh, to learn more about how this whole thing works. Probably it's not what you think. Uh, Hello, good afternoon, uh, gentlemen. Thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to talk today. Let's start with a short uh, introduction round, if possible, uh, starting with uh, you, Andrew. Great, Andrew Fleury. I'm the CEO of Luna. So Luna is a uh, a new company. We're, we're a joint venture from two businesses, Transpoco and Tauglass, both uh, Irish businesses. But we started working together about a year ago in the micromobility space, uh, seeing, okay, how could we address some of the challenges in, in the space from a from a technological point of view? So, uh, yeah, looking forward to talking about that with with you, Andre. Right. Peter? Yeah, I'm Peter Gomez. I'm the Vice President of Operations for Blue Duck Scooters. We're an e-scooter company based out of San Antonio, Texas. We currently operate in seven different markets, and we're really, really excited to be participating with uh, Andrew's technology and improving on our operations itself. Okay, Peter, uh, first of all, what actually brought you to Ireland in the first place? Well, my mother's from Ireland, so it was intriguing. I read an article about Andrew's group on the internet, and I just reached out to him, and we kind of hit it off and started discussing issues and problem solving, and one thing led to another, and I flew over, and we kind of did a joint venture and decided to, to do a pilot program together. Right. Does it also mean that you are planning to roll out more e-scooters in Dublin if that becomes possible with the regulation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Okay, so let's go back to Luna's technology then. Uh, Andrew, can you explain what it is and what it does? Yeah, so so the um, what, what we launched uh, with the, with the event with Peter was was our first innovation. So uh, centimeter level accuracy, well, accurate to about ten centimeters, and we're using uh, RTK technology. Most most of the innovation around that has come on making that 
cost effective for for a scooter. So RTK has been around for for many years, um, and and it's it's a technology that gives highly, highly accurate positioning, but uh, it's been too expensive for for this industry. So we spent a lot of time to try and make it uh, make it doable for for micro mobility. What we've also been working on, but we haven't really spoken about much yet, is is integrating machine vision into the uh, into the product offering as well so so with the machine vision we're going to do a couple of different things like a advanced driver assistance system uh, which will do road recognition so we'll know if the scooter is riding on a on a footpath a bike lane or a road um it the the camera will also do a little bit of vision based positioning um because even with the rtk and the accuracy we we lose um we lose some accuracy in really bad conditions so for example under a bridge or something like that uh we'll lose our uh, our really high resolution accuracy and uh yeah the final feature that we've got on on the camera at the moment is pedestrian detection so walking in a kind of a uh, scootering in a, in a busy pedestrian area the uh, the camera is counting how many people are there and and uh, it factors in the speed of the of the scooter and uh, then that that gives really interesting data to to an operator like peter so he, he knows how many people are in the area at the speed of the scooter and then from there they can make decisions on what do they want to do. Do they want to try and slow down the scooter? Do they want to warn the rider? Do they want to maybe find them? You know that P- Peter's got to got to make those decisions and then build them into their into their app. So 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 that's a a kind of a high level view of of the areas that we're working on. And uh, yeah, it's it's a really exciting space because uh, I think um, it's fr- from the feedback we've had so far. It's uh, the, the value proposition, whilst it's quite simple, every, everybody wants it. Wow, that's that sounds like a lot of tech for uh, for one e-scooter. So uh, let's uh, dive into the tech of RTK in a little bit. But first, uh, Peter, why do you even need this sort of tech in an e-scooter as an operator? Uh, obviously, the first and foremost thing that comes to mind is safety for for our riders and for the pedestrians and and for the manageability of our inventory. What Andrew is proposing is, is is down to the centimeter level to where what we have now is maybe 10, 10 meters out, 15 meters out. It's going to better help us manage our fleet system. And we geofence. When we go to a municipality, we discuss with them where they want the scooters ridden, where they want them to be banned, and, you know, kind of where we don't want our scooters to go a certain level past, say, our city marks. Andrew's technology will help us better serve you know, our geofence to, to shut them down faster, say if they're crossing a line into a part of the city that, that they don't want to allow scooters, uh, it's going to be a quicker reaction time from that perspective as well. Right. Okay, Andrew, so how does the whole thing work? I, and I mean RTK, is it based on accelerometer and gyroscope and stuff like that? Uh, so what, what we're doing is we're, we're getting as good a signal as we can from, uh, you know, all of the available satellite networks. And then we're using a, uh, a base station. So uh, the base stations that we're using have a pretty good range, maybe uh, 15 to 20 kilometers. Um, so, yeah, what, what we would need to do is set up the uh, base station network in uh, the city that you're operating in. So, you know, for Dublin, for example, um, you could cover the kind of central business district with probably one base station, but but two w- would get you there. And then the the uh, the cost of them is not uh, it, you know it's in line with the economics of of what we need to do for 
for the kind of micromobility market. All right. So does it basically mean that whenever you're sure that you're going to get enough business out of it, you will just go into a city and install enough base stations to cover it? Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, and 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 the cities are are, are at the moment are, are are quite obvious, right? So you've you've got the uh, you know the big cities, Berlin's, Paris's, those kind of things. It just makes sense to to go and do them. And uh, yeah, that's probably where the the bigger the city, that's probably where you know the majority of the problems are. So, uh, but but again, the cost of the base stations isn't uh, isn't that prohibitive. So once once you're going beyond uh, maybe a couple of hundred scooters, uh, it's 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 very feasible to put up a base station. Right. So, Peter, do you think that with all this technology included, uh, your e-scooter sharing is going to be more expensive than uh, the other providers uh, can offer in Europe? No, we'll, we'll still we'll still remain very competitive, and and that's kind of the angle that that or the approach that that Andrew and myself have been taking with this technology. We got to figure out how to modify it to where we don't have to pass the cost on to 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 our riders. Are you using off-the-shelf scooters, or uh, or have you built something yourselves? We we are in our fourth generation. We design it. We we design the scooters, get them to the factory, the specs, and um, we've got some really unique things coming out on our fourth generation. Things such as as, as you know uh, interchangeable parts to keep them in the in the in the field longer. Charging systems that will be built in on on the deck boards of, of the scooters. With solar panels, you know, we're, we're really trying to make this a green effort. Right. This is really interesting. Andrew, so how does the module look? Uh, how big is it and how are you retrofitting it into the e-scooters? Yeah, so I, I, again, like uh, I think we're, we're going to be moving quickly through the generation. So we're, we're on generation two at the moment. And uh, right now, it is a it's a bolt-on uh, unit. Um, you know, obviously, we know all the requirements of, of vandal proof and everything like that. But what we've done is we've built it as as a bolt-on, so we can work with uh, you know the different models of, of scooter. And and where we at are are at in in our stage of development is we really want operational feedback. So so we're coming at it as as tech guys. But, uh, you know, in, in reality, we don't have experience of putting out thousands and thousands of scooters. So um, what, what we're doing is we're doing pilots uh, right now. And, that, and that's where we need to get the feedback. And then I think kind of generation, probably generation three will also be a bolt on. And generation four, I expect coming out kind of end of end of the summer would be something uh, maybe built into the scooter. And currently, you are busy with a pilot at uh, the Dublin City University, right? Yeah, so so that's our first pilot. Uh, in that one, we only have the centimeter positioning. Generation two, which which we uh, hope to have the first units uh, ready to go uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll we'll have the machine vision. So we're we're going to look to do another pilot. Peter's definitely put his hand up to to go again. We'd like to find a little bit of a bigger one. The the Dublin City University uh, thing is quite a small footprint, so we're limited on the number of uh, scooters we can put out so we're looking to do uh, something bigger and then we've got a couple of locations uh, in mind so hopefully we can announce something uh, pretty soon about the next pilot which will include obviously the centimeter level stuff but also bringing in the machine vision functions. Peter how did the pilot go uh, from your side of things? I, you know I, I think it's, it's too early to determine, but I mean, as far as from a technical standpoint and a communication standpoint between our system and, and Andrew's IoT, it, it's, it's gone pretty flawless. We've had a few setbacks with the 
sim cars, but that, that had nothing to do with our scooters and, and, and Android's technology. We just had to get our service providers up to date to, to work in Europe, basically. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's gone very well. I've, I'm going to, as Andrew said, you know, the, the thing that's going to set this pilot apart from everybody else from the rest of the scooter world is we, we manage our own fleet. We hire our own employees. We don't contract anything out. We have our own mechanics. We have our own pickup, drop-off, deployment crew. And it's going to allow me to get a lot better and more sophisticated feedback to Andrew so that he could better his process and probably speed it up versus the other scooter companies who just kind of make a mad dash and say, okay, whoever wants to sign up to pick up my scooters and charge them, you can do it. Uh, we're going to be able to have very consistent data on a daily basis communicated back to Andrew. And I'll probably give him access himself to where he can just look at it, everything that he needs to look at. Nice. Andrew, are you already also in conversation with any other e-scooter operators in Europe? Yeah, so so we got we got a great response to the uh, you know some of the PR that came out ar- around the launch. So you know we're, we're getting calls really from from all over the world uh, to to look at the technology. Um, so again, it's it's uh, it's at the point where we need to engage in pilots. We're probably probably for people to commercially roll it out and saying we're doing every scooter in our fleet. The earliest that's going to happen is probably the summer. Um, so, so it's a, it's a case for us of, yeah, let's, let's, uh, have the conversations, but it's still, uh, a little bit, uh, early days for us to roll everything out. But I think if, if you look at where the, uh, you know, the scooter industry is, there's, there's maybe almost like, uh, like the stages of evolution. You had, you had the first stage, which is, is just to prove that people want to ride the scooters. And then, uh, so that was the commercial Segway, not, or the consumer Segway nine bots, going to scooter durability everybody's concentrating concentrated on that for most of 2019 it feels like to me there's a lot of work going into battery swap and unit economic uh, related items and then i think what we're looking at is is sort of municipal you know, municipality compliance and i think that's going to be the hot topic second half of 2020 and into into 2021 is uh you know, when, when some of the basic things like the scooter durability and, and the uh, and and the unit economics are more mature, then it's really going to be like, uh, okay, how do we maintain good relationships with the cities? And then that's where this technology really comes into play. Right. Andrew, since you are on the ground that is in Ireland, uh, are you following the whole changes in uh, the regulation in the country? Because as far as I understand, uh, there was a bill that was supposed to amend uh, the Old Road Act, uh, which would uh, uh, generally permit uh e-scooters on the on the roads uh, what's what's happening there yeah so i'm following really closely like the, the great thing about ireland is it's it's uh, it's a small you know it's a small enough market that you could, everybody knows everybody but it's also big enough that you can do meaningful uh things but uh yeah essentially we're, we're actually building a pretty exciting uh micro mobility community there's a couple of uh bike share companies bleeper bike moby that are that are on the ground they have licenses with the council um, Smart Dublin is an initiative uh, from the 
uh, local authorities of Dublin, and they're really, really helpful. Like they, uh, you know, they they bend over backwards to facilitate innovation in the city. So, so there's a lot of things happening. So I think it's I think it's coming. I think uh, generally most people want it. It's just getting through that education process. And uh, yeah, you know, the challenge the challenge you've got in Ireland is you, is you actually have to change the law for for them to go. Whereas in other places. Uh, maybe it didn't require a legislation change, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's coming. I, I would be surprised if if in kind of twelve months it's we don't have shared micromobility e-scooters on the ground. Right, Peter, do you think you would like to also partner with Luna in uh, places where you're already active? That is in the US. No, oh, yeah, this this is going to be across the board for us. If we can get this technology right, it's, it's going to be a home run in the markets we currently operate in. And it's going to present itself. It's going to lend itself to for us to better facilitate, you know, initial meetings with local municipalities and governments, and give them assurances based on you know the technology we're using. And obviously, technology. The, the biggest value of technology is is proving it out and and showing that it's actually what it said it's supposed to be. So yeah, this is going to be if, if this works, it's going to be across the board. Okay. So uh, also just uh, uh, for me and uh, I guess most of uh, the audience, uh, Blue Duck is not exactly the household name in Europe. Uh, so can you just talk a little bit about the company itself? How did you start and uh, how are you different from uh, the rest of the uh, uh, peer peers? Yeah, our, our, our company was founded by Eric and Paul Bell uh, out of San Antonio, Texas. They were on vacation in California and saw the scooter market evolve there and said, hey, we need to bring this to Texas. And they brought on our CEO, Michael Keane, who has just an incredible background. We, we, the, the biggest differentiating part of us to, to other scooter companies is we built an operations model before we built our distribution model. And as Andrew said, everything is coming down to, to the life of the scooter, the costs of maintaining the scooters. We started with that. So in my opinion, you know, we're, we're leaps and bounds. We may not be the household name. But we're leaps and bounds, you know, ahead of them as far as, you know, being an operational model. I think everybody's going to have to shift towards becoming an operational model rather than a distribution platform. I think some people were misled to think that this would be, you know, similar to an Uber or Lyft and just turn on a software and you go. But it's proven out because of the requirements of the cities and the, the cost of the scooters themselves and managing the scooters. People are going to have to take a long look at, at, at their business plans. Uh, we, we are in secondary and tertiary markets. Uh, we're not afraid to go into the bigger markets. We've had great success in the secondary markets with, you know, local governments. Uh, we've actually got to the point where to, they're requesting our presence in their cities after that they've had experiences with the brand name scooters that have been run out of the city or have abandoned the city. Uh, we come in, you know, with a different approach and it seems to be working very, very well for us everywhere that we're going. Uh, and we have, you know, we have a, a list waiting to be opened right now. It's just a matter of how soon we can get there and, and get the facilities built out. Right. And how big are you at the moment in terms of uh, funding uh, employees' uh, scooter count? We're, we're just at 100, under 100 employees. Uh, our scooter count total is about 5,000, not all of them being in the field yet, but, you know, we've got to allocate it for those. Uh, our goal is to open about 60 markets in the United States in the next 24 months. And a market can be anywhere from, you know, 100 all the way up to 500. So we're, as long as we keep having the success we have, we're, we're, we're going to continue to grow as far as funding. 
We are in our in in the capital raise right now. We've got some very good response, and we've already had confirmed funding. And you know, I don't think the the funding is going to be an issue. It's just going to be a matter of of figuring out how to be better than everybody else. Right. And uh, is your European interest limited by Dublin, or are you considering other markets? Absolutely not. Um, it, like I said, Dublin was just a very very close to the heart thing for me because my family's all there and you know i hit it off with andrew but as i said if this technology works i i i'm not opposed to taking it or we're not opposed to taking it anywhere in europe understood andrew so how about luna then uh, what's uh, uh, what's been going on uh, in the company so when did you start it how did you start it and uh, how has it been uh, as a business on that side yeah, so we we probably started working on it about a about a year ago, um, and it it came from from uh, working with Tauglass. So they're the antenna guys. Uh, to put it in context, they sold about a million antennas to the shared scooter market in. 2018. But what they could see they were selling was, uh, you know, they're off the shelf automotive grade uh, antennas. And, and, and you know, every, everybody would know the level of accuracy they're going to get to that. But to go to the high precision stuff that they that they can do, it wasn't just as simple as doing it because it, it was quite a quite a you know, a technological leap. So we partnered up and I would say we've been working on it for maybe a little bit more than 12 months yeah, it's 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 kind of gathered pace. So uh, we probably branded up as Luna maybe six months ago. Our initial view of things was we would you know we would do an end to end platform. But the more we've kind of spoken to people in the market, uh, it seems like more like a, a kind of a a hardware and API play and integrate with with what's there. You know, don't try and replace uh, the relationships that are built. So uh, so that that's where it is. We don't really want to. Uh, you know, Peter to change, um, you know, all of their, their tech stack. Uh, we we want to come in and, and be, and be part of that. And uh, yeah, I think we, we can offer the, the really highly accurate functions of the machine vision without disrupting everything they're doing, you know, their own, their own apps and their own technology. So, so that's the play for us. Speaking of the machine with vision, uh, is it going to be working mostly on the edge yeah, mostly on the edge. So, so we're really, really lucky uh, in what it, the guys that are here in Dublin. We're working with the uh, Movidius, and, and and Movidius is a company that was bought out by Intel. So they have a really uh, amazing chip with with low power consumption, and uh, yeah, that's that's the chip that we're that we're working off. So basically everything done on the edge. We will have functions where if there's an incident, uh, we can pull down video but uh, all of the uh, the the kind of functions like the the, the road recognition or, or pedestrian detection is, is is done on the edge right and uh, if we just uh, talk about technical details uh, for uh, rtk what uh, is the frequency and technology that uh, uh, you're using underneath I thought I was going to get through this call without without going out of my depth. Technically, I am not sure, Andre. Unfortunately, I, I'll have to come back to you on that. Uh, I just don't know that one. But uh, the, the, that's that's where where it really helps that we've a, we've a great team. We've got uh, you know the, the expertise of everybody in Tauglass, and and then my my side. I'm I'm a software guy, so uh, you, you, you've you've just pushed me out of my area of comfort there. But uh, yeah, I'll have to come back to you with the answer there. Peter, are you here? Yes. Okay, we've lost Andrew. 
Okay, it doesn't really matter that much because I was uh, that was my last question. So I will contact uh, Andrew later to say uh, thanks uh, to him. But Peter, thanks a lot uh, for uh, showing up today. Uh, sorry again for the delay with the beginning of this interview and good luck uh, in Ireland. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll get towards your area as well. We're, we're pretty aggressive. Sounds good. Cheers. Good luck. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of TechU, episode number 151. It is time for our recommendation part, uh, the favorite part of myself and hopefully you, Natalie, still. So my recommendation today is a brilliant piece on the history of Internet that is called Friend of a Friend, the Facebook that could have been. The story is posted by Sinclair Target on on his blog called Two Bit History, which I recommend to subscribe to. I have enjoyed every single post that I have read there so far. So this story that I wanted to recommend today is about a standard uh, which I didn't even know existed really. So it was called Friend of a Friend, and it was supposed to be a part of the so-called semantic web. And if you don't know what that is, there are also a bunch of links in the story to give you a primer. It's a really big topic again to discuss. But anyway, in the early 2000s, Friend of a Friend was seen by a lot of people, and not just gigs, but also by mainstream media and stuff, as the future of social networking. Uh, and if it took off, as as far as I understand, it would actually allow to build interconnected social networks and not like walled gardens we've got now with uh, Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. And most probably, uh, this would prevent many issues that we have uh, with uh, Facebook and uh, other major social networks uh, these days. So basically, it offered the same decentralization uh, that has become so hot and so hip over the uh, past few years with uh, blockchain and uh, other technologies like that. So check the piece on uh, 2-Bit History to learn more about Friend of a Friend, uh, why it has not become the global standard and whether there is still a chance for that to happen. That sounds really interesting and I can't wait to check that out. Yeah, it is. I really, I really enjoy uh, all the history posts on uh, on this blog because there are so many things that ha- were happening like 20, 25, 30 years ago, which we kind of see being resurrected uh, now in a bit of a different uh, kind of way, but it's still fundamentally the same. You have quite a bit of nostalgia for the the old ways of the internet <laughs> and the old web. <laughs> I, I knew I knew you would say something like this, but I mean, I just uh, I have to admit, yeah, I, I mean, I, I probably do. It's it's not like it's not like I, I think the grass was greener back then, but it's just really really a fascinating topic, and uh, the internet is already in the is is already old enough, really, uh, for it to have uh, this uh, history uh, that uh, can be investigated and uh, studied. Anyway, no more history for today, as far as I understand, and your recommendation is something much more applicable, I guess. Well, I really like recommending kind of things that you can use or things that you can use to optimize um, yourself. And my recommendation this week is a Twitter thread by Siriam Krishan, who is a San Francisco-based investor and product guy, and it's on the topic of cold emails. And if one of your resolutions for 2020 is to continue building your network, it's something that I think should be on everyone's list of resolutions anyway. Or if you're looking to make a career move, one way of doing it is through cold emailing. And it's something that I think can be somewhat controversial, but it really shouldn't be. No matter where you are, most people can be reachable by email. And if there's someone you want to reach out to, you shouldn't be afraid of doing that. You really can make some incredible connections by doing so, and you really don't need permission. So I want to invite people to take that chance and take that opportunity because 
when I'm speaking with investors, they're always really adamant that they do read their cold emails. So if there's someone you want to connect with, nothing should stop you from doing that. But to make these most effective, you need to do the cold email right. And Siram outlines the four elements of a successful cold email. And he says they are, first, they're short, it grabs attention. Two, the email is super clear on who you are. Three, it has some sort of value proposition for the receiver. And four, it has a specific ask. And in the Twitter post, he goes a bit more into detail about how they do this, but I think it's a great reminder about the value that can be had from cold emails and how you can use them to build your network from anywhere. It's something that I want to get better at and do more of this year. So if that's on your resolution list, I would encourage you to check that out. But I'd add one caveat here um, that, you know, sometimes you send a cold email and you might not get any response. And it's something that really slowed me down when I first came to Europe a long time ago and I was trying to reach people in the ecosystem and I was getting a lot of closed doors. But don't give up. Keep trying. And um, really just you never know until you put yourself out there. Do, do you mean that it's different in the U.S.? Do you mean that in Europe you get uh, uh, fewer replies to cold emails than in the U.S.? I wouldn't want to kind of make a justification because things um, have changed uh, in both places a lot since then. Um, maybe my strategy wasn't particularly good when I first arrived here, or maybe I wasn't reaching out to the right kind of people. So I wouldn't want to kind of base any conclusions on that, um, on my personal anecdotal experience. But right. I think it's really important that when you get a cold email, um, kind of what you do with it um, really tells a lot about who you are. And so um, it's it, it they can be very illustrative. You might think this person might be a really wonderful person to work with or they have a lot of value to you, but then um, you never hear anything back. And of course, you can't look too much into it. Maybe things got lost or things got delayed. Who knows? But just keep putting yourself out there. You never know what can happen. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I have to say that uh, just uh, general cold emails are not that uh, uh, dissimilar to uh, journalist pitches that uh, we get a lot of. And uh, generally, as far as I can see this uh, Twitter thread, most of these uh, advice actually applies to the way that you can pitch a journalist to, or at TechEU or elsewhere. So this is basically some common sense emailing etiquette, if you will, at least uh, in, the, in, this, uh, in this industry. And this uh, is certainly something that you should always be uh, aware of and you should always try to comply with. Do you get a lot of uh, cold pitches these days, Natalie? Every single day. <laughs> and it's really <laughs> unfortunate because I would love to feature everyone. I kind of I come from this sociological perspective that everyone's story is important and everyone has a story to tell. And I also know how transformational it can be to get your story out there in the media. I've had some really great responses from some of the long form interviews that I've done and really heard some of the externalities that have happened from um, getting the story out on TechEU or elsewhere. And I would love to be able to do that for everyone. But unfortunately, I just don't have the bandwidth to do um, to do that. But keep trying and keep connecting. Um, you never know what could unfold. Yeah, indeed. I think your reverse pitches and your interviews are great. I don't get to write uh, as uh, much long form as I would uh, like to, but I do enjoy reading your stuff. Thanks, Andre.
Now, it is time for us to wrap it up for today. This is it for today's podcast. I do hope you enjoyed listening to us today. If you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andre at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thank Thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much, Andre. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye.